Hi, I'm Natalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where we discuss the real, eccentric, and complex history of math. In each episode, we unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. Today, we'll talk about Kurt Godel, and this episode will answer the following questions. What's the best way to point out typos in an important document? What if a statement cannot be proved? What do either of these have to do with math? Let's find out. Hello again, Joanna. We also have Joanna again. I am so pumped. She's one of my favorite people. And today we're going to talk about Kurt Godel. So hello, hello. Hi, Natalie. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, can't wait to talk about, well, Gettel, Godel. Let's have another kind of like undecided situation on how do we say these names. So anyone that knows Hungarian... Let us know how to pronounce this properly. And so in the meantime, we ask, we humbly ask your apologies in advance in case we mess up the name. <laughs> he was born in Austria-Hungary in, in Brun, and I think I've pronounced that correct. And this was sort of at the, the turn of the century, so like 1906. And, you know, he lived really up until the 1970s. So, you know, this is the time period that we're in pretty... I say pretty recent, but honestly, like maybe it's just because I'm getting old. <laughs> it seems recent. 1906 to the 1970s is the time period. I and, think that's uh, to call it recent. People who were born around those times are still alive. They're still here. They're still here. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> He was born in in this uh, in Austria Hungary, which essentially was uh, dissolved after defeat with Germany in that First World War. The hometown is now part of the Czech Republic. Basically, it's a very varied situation. Even he had lots of different nationalities. He was Austrian, German, American, but during his lifetime, so that shows us how fluid borders are essentially. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, you know, just kind of his childhood. So another person that came from sort of a well-to-do family, uh, his dad owned partly in in some part a textile company, and his mom was also pretty well-educated, and he was pretty close to her throughout most of his life. He kept uh, yeah correspondence with her uh, throughout her, her life. He seemed to have had a good childhood, people that looked after him really well and cared for him and supported him to do well. He suffered from frequent childhood illnesses, so and that possibly led him to be a bit hypochondriac later in his life. Which we'll definitely see, but I don't feel like I did a good job when we were talking about Demoivre, highlighting some of the amazing illustrations that are in here. I cannot, I, I'm just, I'm addicted. They're amazing. They've got a couple of illustrations here with the on this page, but the one I want to talk about is definitely where you were just talking about he had a bunch of childhood illnesses. So you've got this young Godel that is running and you've got like three viruses, one of which looks very angry and it's purple and it's chasing him. So it's amazing. I love it. I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do you pick hypochondria in a fun <laughs> way? That's more than easy thing to do. Yeah. So So when he was in school, he actually was interested in not just math, but also languages. So um, alas, 
this podcast is ahead of its time because, or wait, is that right? No, it's behind its time because we could have gotten Godel on here to talk to us about languages if we had only done this before he passed. But not only uh, math, like I said, but languages and also religious studies. And he attended university in Vienna where he started studying physics, but then switched over to math and philosophy, the two entwined sciences. I didn't get this chance that I kind of like was hoping for. I don't think languages and maths are so distinct. I think that they're very heavily connected. Some people say I'm more a language person. I'm more a maths person. Well, actually, high accuracy in language mm-hmm. helps in maths and, and, and so on. And I feel like Gerald being so interested in both of those things is kind of like a testimony to that either or situation, it can be uh, very much coexisting in the same person. It's funny that you say that, because again, shout out to when I was, or throwback to when I was teaching. And we always sit and talk about the importance of showing your work. And students are always like, but why though? Like, it's just very clear to see that this and this and that and that. And can't you read my mind and all the things, right? And so I would always like the way I describe it to them is I tell them, suppose I were to come in here and I were to say to you, hey, Slytherin's the best house, QED. That's it. Just believe me. What would you tell me? And then, of course, they're like, no, it's Hufflepuff. They all get into this whole thing. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I'm like, exactly. I would need to write essentially a persuasive essay to justify to you why Slytherin is the best house, even though, come on, I know it's a fact, right? Same (laughs) with math. If you're going to make a conclusion, you're starting at A, you're getting to B, it doesn't just happen. You need to write the persuasive paper and you need to write it clearly, effectively, and concisely. And so I agree with you 100% on that. Awesome. Yeah. And and also then we go to to philosophy and obviously Mm -hmm. there was math and philosophy and math logic eventually which um, all rely on language and, and, and such precision. The people that he was taught by, Hans Hahn and Moritz uh, Schlick, were, um, I don't know, I, I hadn't heard of them before I looked into his life, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. However, there were people that were members of the Vienna Circle, which was uh, kind of like a philosophical place where people would meet and, and talk about uh, philosophy and trends of the time. We've kind of seen this, right? In every, in every what country, I guess, you had the Royal Society, and now this is the Vienna Circle over here. So kind of a, a similar type of idea, though obviously different priorities. But definitely, you know, this was also like we talked about in the Newton Leibniz episode, this was also where they would go to these different circles and get like, that's where they got their gravitas and their support and all that to kind of leveled them up in in the mathematical world. But so in any case, he got his doctorate in 1929-ish, you know, around Han, under Hans Hahn. And I love that name. Since that time, like in the next 10 years, so in the 1930s, he just came out with some groundbreaking, just amazing work that led to something really cool. So I'll, I'll let you share the cool thing because then I can react to it. Maths is the thing we all trust. And it's the thing that we know will hold true forever. Things that were proved by Euclid 2,300 years ago are true today and will be true forever. Within this context of how much trust 
and faith we have in maths. That's the one thing that once something is proven will never change, unlike other sciences. We did not expect what Gero found. The, the, the mathematicians of the time were caught completely off guard. They were completely caught off in a very difficult spot. Like we had Hilbert talking about them. We will know, we must know. And they were determined to, to create a very structured math system where everything can be proven for certain. You start with your postulates, with your axioms, you build on them. So what Gerald did was he identified that's not possible pretty much. So that doesn't change the fact that what we prove in mass will hold true forever. That is the case. However, there will be statements in math that are true and we will never be able to prove. And there are statements that are not that are false and we will not be able to disprove. And that's what changed the shook the mathematical society of the time in its whole. To kind of give an example of some of that, you know, the axioms are things like maybe something like zero is less than one. That's something that we can't prove. That just is. Essentially, it's like you distill it down to its most pure essence. And then you assume that this is true. And then based upon that, you can build a foundation based upon those sorts of things. And this was actually something too that we talked about, I think in Euclid. And I think there was another episode where we talked about this, where it was like mathematics. One of my favorite things about mathematics of the many is that with science, it's like in the news, they'll tell you eggs are good, eggs are bad, eggs are good, eggs are bad. With math, math is going to turn around and say, all right, no matter what type of egg, what chicken lays it, how you use it, how you cook it, doesn't matter. It's always good for you and will give these benefits. That is sort of the difference between the other sciences and math. Simon Singh has this great book, Fermat's Enigma. And I, why do I keep just shouting out to Fermat? But whatever, he's cool. I don't care. I love him. And one of the things, and I know I've talked about this book in, in several episodes, but he talks about, you know, this idea of the mathematical proof and making sure that we can prove it every single time. And there's a really good example there. And one of the things I love about the book the most is that it gives you sort of these nice vantage points that you can stop and look back to see how far you've come. There was a time before zero. What happens at that point? There was a time when we didn't have negative numbers. What happened? You know, and that type of thing. It's really nice. But to your point, this was groundbreaking at the time. If you're building this, this foundation, this unshakable, you know, it must be this way always. And now you have someone coming out and saying, what is it? This statement can't be proven or whatever. And, the, you know, if you have a large enough system, certainly you're going to have some of those. This was groundbreaking at the time. And in 1932, there was even a lecture, you know, so again, he graduated in 1929. And then over the next 10 years, he did all this great work. And in so a couple of years after he graduates, there's a public lecture to present the new discoveries that were here in, in mathematical logic. By the way, his specifically new discoveries, not just any, but his. So he bought a ticket to attend this sweet man and he kept the ticket till the end of his life. That just like my heart, my heart. <laughs> yeah, my heart melts as well. It's like he was romantic in so many aspects, as we can see later, his personal life as well. To keep that ticket for the entirety of your life, but 
it also shows that how significant that lecture was and and um that it was changing maths forever like the presentation of those results was something that changed how people thought about math shall we say about his romantic life a bit as well yeah sure because this is an important period in history. If you think about what was happening in the 30s, right? We're gearing up for World War II. We've got, you know, sort of the rise of Hitler and and all of that happening. And he actually did get invited to the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University. So he would, you know, leave his country, he would come to Princeton, but then he would come back home and he, his homeland was facing basically Nazi threat, it was devastated and it would give a rise to a lot of fear and unrest. And then there was uh, also a murder that had occurred. I don't know if you if you want to chat about that, but by a former student, he was not really in a good place at this time. And he would enter and, and, and choose to, to remain in sanatoriums for a little period of time, you know, intermittent, intermittently during this decade. So while he's also doing all this great work, he's got a lot of stuff that's that's kind of happening to him that is not amazing. <laughs> You're right. And sometimes we know that the war periods and, and we say they were devastating, but sometimes we forget to look at the kind of like each individual life and how that was uh, affected. In his case, he was invited to go to Princeton and give lectures and so on. But uh, traveling there at that time was also very, very difficult. It wasn't, there were not the thousands of flights a day as we have these days. But not only that, this is now that I'm talking to you about this and saying it out loud, I think like this is very timely. You think about how tough travel has been from 2020 to 20, even now, right? And trying to navigate some of that and also seeing some of the ramifications of the pandemic now that we don't have, <laughs> the world's gotten a lot larger again, right? So I think definitely like there's there's thinking through like what it would be like to go to go somewhere and then come back home and see like your home having some detrimental effects of various things. Just, you know, it's tough. That's a great segue now that I've depressed everyone. Now let's talk about his romantic life. <laughs> it's not the most uplifting of them all because his family objected to the love of his life, really. So Andel uh, Nibarsky was former dancer and six years older than him. A family would not approve of her and he had a, a secret relationship with her for, for almost 10 years. They got married. In 1938, this guy graduates in 1929. From that point through, let's just say all of the 30s, he has these great mathematical discoveries. He does all these wonderful things. He has also some emotional issues. She's with him for this whole entire time in this secret relationship. What a layered life. His family, for whatever reason, could be like, why is he in and out of sanatoriums? Is it her fault? Again, I'm just speculating here. But for whatever reason, they were against this relationship. Maybe it was because she was a former dancer. What type of dancer? Um, I'm going to put a pin in that. And also six years older than him. So for whatever reason, they were against it. But she stayed with him for his whole life. 
So it wasn't a fling. It wasn't anything superficial. They were like really supportive of each other and, and, and stuck together through some, as you said, really, really difficult times, including, yeah, being in a sanatorium and so on. I think this kind of like devotion is, is really heartwarming. If you're at the start of your relationship and you have some tough times and you manage to sort of pick through it together, that kind of gives you the more the more solid foundation. Like if you manage to overcome whatever challenge together, as opposed to, you know, if you're fighting with each other and stuff like that. And so definitely I think that this is a testament and a hallmark to to ultimately the, the rest of their life and their relationship together, which we'll sort of dip back into. So we're in this political time and World War II and Godel is, we talked about his various nationalities, but ultimately he's German. If you're German and we're in World War II, Hitler's probably going to tell you that and that he needs you for his military, right? Now, the type of man he is, he's very cerebral. He's, you know, high-level math philosopher, had his issues in, in and out of the sanatorium. Like, he couldn't continue doing that if he went into the military. He decided that he was going to flee to the U.S. with his wife. Indeed. He was terrified of being conscripted. So because he already had connections at Princeton, obviously, because mm-hmm. he's been there before, managed to move to the uh, United States and uh, where he lived the rest of his life. For example, he continued to correspond with his mom but uh, and, and kept promising that he would visit her, but he never dared to do that because he was worried that he would going to get stuck in Europe and all the disastrous situations that were happening at the time. So, And he never left. But on the other hand, he met Albert Einstein and they became very close friends there. People were witnessing them taking long walks together and I'm guessing discussing all sorts of very interesting things, uh, exchanging ideas and, and changing the world as we know it in a way. Right. Thinking back to his mom, given how close they were, how sad he must have been not to have seen her, I guess, but once he left before she passed, whenever whenever that was. But definitely, you know, once he came to the U.S., it's interesting because he did become really good friends with Albert Einstein. But there's this, you know, part of coming to the U.S. and becoming a citizen, which he got citizenship less than a decade later. You have to take the test. You have to do the interview and all that sort of stuff. And he actually, (laughs) this is, this. I'm, I'm dying. I'm sorry. This is the most amazing thing. While studying for his citizenship exam, he spots a contradiction in the Constitution of the U.S., the United States Constitution, you know, the OG document. And so he, in his interview, he insisted on pointing it out. And his lawyer managed to stop him before he was he got into too difficult a situation that would jeopardize ultimately his citizenship. But I think that's so funny because, again, ever the mathematician, we've seen this with Erdish, this same type of thing. I need to say this thing because it's mathematically incorrect and it's just going to drive me nuts about it. And you need other people sometimes to kind of rein you in and be like, don't be that crazy person. Especially at the time, to overtake his naturalization would be quite devastating because the alternatives were very, very grand. Right, a hundred percent. But then again, it shows like policies and 
you know, all of these documents are very heavily mathematical in a way. Language and to... math. Language and exactly. math. Yep. Back to our <laughs> conviction there. So we talked a little about his incompleteness theorem. We talked about the, you know, whether or not it can be proven and the large systems and things like that. I think the theorems actually were proven by Hilbert shortly thereafter, or I'm sorry, no, they were proven by Godel after Hilbert came up with some problems that needed solutions by virtue of not being able to have that foundation. And there are lots of just big names here. There's Cantor, you know, and his infinities and things like that. And so I know this was something that was that you're very passionate about that you wanted to talk about. So let me, you know, let me turn it over back to you. Briefly mentioned earlier, but um, a bit more kind of like in depth, as you say. For example, the first time we have axioms in maths was with Euclid, 300 BC. The axioms were like between two points, there is a unique straight line and things like that, like very blankly obvious statements that we can accept with no no argument and based on based on those a whole kind of like theories produced theorems um, and so on the aspiration was that there would be the possibility to do that with with everything with um set theory with the, the create a, an axiomatic system and build everything there then paradoxes started coming in for example it's a famous the Russell's paradox with defining sets and which sets are members of themselves and so on. And we also have the so-called Barbers paradox where we are on an island or any kind of like secluded town where all men are shaven, there's no beards allowed. The ones who do not shave shave themselves are shaven by the barber. The question is who shaves the barber? He's not allowed to shave himself as he's the barber who is only shaving the people who do not shave themselves. And, and it, it goes into a loop kind of like, and then you cannot really have an answer there. In amidst all these kind of like new paradoxes that are coming up, we have Hilbert's desire of this system to be consistent and, and uh, complete and everything can be proven, um, collapse. And Gettle's incompleteness theorems were the kind of like final strong if you like them that. The example that is used to demonstrate this is through a statement, through this, this following sentence. This statement cannot be proved. In mathematical logic, something can neither be true or false. So if we have this statement cannot be proved and we say that's a false statement, it means that it can't be proved, hence it's true, which contradicts what we said that it's right. false. Right, right. And if we say that this is a statement that's true and we accept it as true then it cannot be proved so we have to accept that there are true statements out there that we'll never be able to prove and also kind of like false statements that we cannot disprove and And i think you know a good example of that is something like my husband loves me i know it's true but how do i prove it you know (laughs) that's a good yeah yeah because Basically, it changes everything philosophically as well, doesn't it? So, mm-hmm. if, if there are even statements in math yep. that you cannot prove, that you cannot decide if it's true or not, what about all the other big questions that mm-hmm. we have? In maths, cannot answer its own questions. Yeah. How can we answer the big, big questions? 
I don't know. I, I found that fascinating. I mean, a hundred percent, you know, it's like, I love this thing that you have when we're on your page about infinities. And as I was reading it, you have a question here where you're talking about, you know, the accountable and uncountable and, you know, all of that and, and like infinities, but does it matter? Well, you know, your, your paragraph here, which I'm I'm going to read just a couple of sentences from it. Who would we think would be allowed to ask this question in mathematics where it feels like everything is extremely strict and structured and important? And it does matter. It matters. Like we should be asking these questions. We should be having these conversations because that, again, is how we become ha 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 ahead of our time. That is how we get the discoveries. That is how we get the inspiration. And also, gosh darn it, it's just fun to think. Absolutely. As you said, I, I love for and multiple infinities and, and all that came with it. But the fact that we don't know if there is an infinity between countable and real number infinity, mm-hmm. is there an infinity in between? Is there not an infinity in between? That's where it goes. It's undecidable. There's been proofs that it doesn't matter. If it's true, there's no contradiction coming up. If it's not true, there's no contradiction coming up. So it's it's really quite uh, unsettling in a, in a in a way that we can have this conversation in, in, in maths and say, it does not matter. But yes, I shouldn't get carried away too much. Why not? <laughs> That's the, literally what I uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> with the infinities, the idea is that um, according to Gettle's theorems, some statements are true and not provable. And the big challenge now is the big gamble, I suppose, is people who do do research in mathematics devote their lives in proving something. It may not be provable. Yeah. So I think that makes it even more challenging for people who choose to pursue research in mathematics. Like and you professor. think about our good friend Fermat, who had this 300-year-old problem, right? Can it be provable? Eventually, but look at all the steps that had to take. So I think certainly we have the thing that says, you know, we may not be able to prove it and like with axioms and things like that. But at the same time, I think it's important to still have the discussion and to still ask the question and to still be curious. Like that's sort of my thing, my takeaway from this, um, you know, just big picture on that. Absolutely. And um, there needs to be this kind of like patience and continuity and, and see where this whole thing goes. And so again, to, to kind of close up on on the mathematics there, his mathematics were groundbreaking. We need to like for sure come back to that piece of it because it changed the face of mathematics up until that point. Still lots of old math problems that haven't been solved. Fermat was just solved recently when there's just a whole bunch more that haven't been solved and that's okay. Even though we're still having these conversations, we're still questioning, we're still doing all these things. And so again, we're going back to our good friends Cardano and everything because the incompleteness theorems do make it more of a gamble to try and attack some of those problems. And we certainly saw that in Fermat where it would be like, okay, if we solve this thing, then we can... Oh, and all the air comes out of your your balloon because you didn't do like that. Whatever problem it is doesn't actually solve what you're trying. You still have so much further to go. Or if like one question, one answer begets 18 more questions, right? That's the thing that makes it exciting and fun. And, you know, always, you know, adventure is out there, right? That's that's the idea. Absolutely. I mean, and and then places and and websites like Clay Mathematics Institute with all the 
unsolved problems that are up for a million dollars and things like that. Yes. And there's still so much uh, research and, and, and new mathematical ideas and tools being discovered or invented as we speak. And, and there's constant progress. That's not to say there's no progress. There's constant progress. But there's also that element of gambling, as you said, on is it probable? Is it not? Well, let's see. In the process, usually there's new things that are discovered anyway, kind of like. Right. Here's another thing that like just pops into my head while we're talking. Again, around this time, who is alive? Erdish is alive. What is Erdish doing? He is encouraging. Like, I can only imagine because he was 1913. So we talk about 19, what, 30-ish. So that's what he's 17 maybe 20, when this incompleteness theorem comes out. And this opens up in his world. What does this open up in his world? Now he can think of all these other things, like how amazing and inspiring. He is the one that's dropping money, being like, can you solve this? Here's a $50 one. Here's a $100 one. Here's a $1,000 one. He's the one that like gets the same, like how inspiring to live these two men to live at the same time where you've got someone that changes the whole face of math and someone else that has like the exact excitement to like push someone to their limit, the exact knowledge base that's like, this is a little harder than you can do, but I'm going to push you. Stop thinking about everything else. I'm going to get the whole mathematics community together. I may ruin your house while I stay there, but that's fine. <laughs> you know, like we're going to do math, right? And, mm. and like, how amazing is it for him to, to, for these two men to be alive? Kind of like what we just talked about in previous episodes with, with the mathematicians that were alive back then. Like, I think it's certainly interesting to think about how prolific Godel is on his own, but also the fact that, you know, he doesn't operate in a vacuum and Erdish doesn't operate in a vacuum. They're influenced and affected by each other. And that's, I mean, oh, I'm going to go think on this. I am going to spend the rest of the day just living with this in my head. This is amazing. <laughs> Exciting to identify the which of these people coexisted and, and influenced each other in, in so many ways. Absolutely. We have to come to the end of Godel's life, which is kind of sad because for as prolific as he was, and as you mentioned sort of at the start of the episode, there was serious foreshadowing here. He had a lot of childhood illnesses and he probably didn't feel really great. Even when he started his life as a younger man, he was in and out of sanatoriums. You know, he had health problems young and then mental health problems a little older. And all of that sort of contributed to what happened to him later in life. So again, he's super devoted to his work super, super devoted. And this caused him to become increasingly anxious and fearful. You know, if you become, if you think about the deep focus, if you're constantly focused on one thing all the time and your brain sort of never has a chance to relax, that sort of mental state. What ended up happening there was that some of the hypochondriac features started to manifest. So exactly as you said, he started being uh, worried that someone is trying to poison him. His wife was helping him a lot and that she was either preparing the food for him or she would taste the food before he had it so he would feel reassured. However, at some point, she became unwell for 
other reasons. And uh, she had to stay, she had to be hospitalized for an extended period of time. And that's when his situation really deteriorated. He almost refused to eat and eventually died weighing around 29 kilograms. And that, by the way, is about uh, 63 pounds. Because the U.S., yeah, exactly. we don't we use can, the, the yeah. rest of the world's uh, measurements. Electric units. Basically, it's like a young child, maybe, yeah. I don't know, 10 years old or something. You know, I, I had occasion to talk to someone the other day. I don't remember what we were talking about, but my husband is the one that, that cooks for the household only because, like, I burn water. I will be the first person to say, do not trust me because I, I burn water. And I recently tried to tell him, like, I want to do this thing. There's another YouTube channel we watch called Try Guys, and they do sort of this chaos cooking where someone tells them, hey, make, like, a macaron and they don't have any recipe or anything. They just have to like do it from their head. So I got this wild idea that I was going to do this. And my husband, it drove him crazy because he's kind of got this method method to doing things. And I was like, no, I'm just going to cook it. It's going to be fine. Anyway, long story short, there's like a huge amount. If you don't know what you're doing with cooking, right? We know at the base level, if you don't cook chicken enough, that's a problem. You get salmonella, right? There's all kinds of problems if you don't do things correctly. But there's also a level of trust with the person that is giving you your meals because you have to trust that they know the stuff like, I have cooked my chicken long enough. We're not exactly. having medium rare chicken. But <laughs> also the level of trust that they're not going to willfully do something to harm you as well. If you've said that you want, you know, back back a few years ago, they had this sort of scandal that was McDonald's serving horse meat. You don't expect that to happen. You don't trust it. And throughout history, we've seen that the Pope had like taste testers and things like that to make sure that they, and, and so there is this degree of trust that you definitely do have to place in the person that is preparing your food. So, you know, that certainly is something that like we don't think about every day, but it's not an unreasonable, you know, you're, you're putting, if you put diesel in a gas engine, the car is not going to go. It's going to be very detrimental. We just trust, I think, in general. And I think that, you know, it's not too terrible of a, of a worry to have, but certainly with the amount that we have to eat, like how debilitating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that he was so worried that the only person that could ever have food, create food for him was his wife. If we don't have to think about it, it, it it's almost irrelevant. But once it there you're like actually yes i have to eat at least three times a day and 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 so on so don't absolutely. forget snacks <laughs> that's the snacks i said at least three times <laughs> i was very careful about that <laughs> mathematical language very very uh, <laughs> mm. you know and yeah. his death certificate it read oh, the cause of death reads starvation and inanition due to personality disorder in reading that, I was I was so sad because this prolific mathematician, and sure, maybe like we talk about all these weird mathematicians and the stories behind them, but like I know that everybody knows, everybody knows, quote unquote, but like he is, it is widely known that he had this, this issue at the end of his life, but it's also important, uh, uh, you know, one man's story is not one sentence, like it's not just on his death record, he starved, like he changed the face of math. And, you know, he inspired all these people to go and seek adventure with math and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, even though there was this 
situation that he had that he was dealing with, he brought so much good to the world. Yeah, absolutely. He revealed something that was at its time to be revealed, I suppose. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I thank you again so much for sharing your time, sharing your knowledge, you know, just having great conversations, love talking about language. So we've done a great job of paying homage to these mathematicians that love language as well. For sure, it's been wonderful as always. Tell us again, where can we find you? Thank you so much for um, having me again. And it's such a pleasure, honestly. I, I love chatting about these things and I'm enjoying my time immensely here. The best place would be uh, my website, ioannagrogene.com. So I'll let you do the kind of like link in there for the spelling. You know, I've got um, the links in the description for, for sure. The, <laughs> yeah, for the weird kind of like exotic name. And um, yeah, all, all uh, things about my books, my kind of like events coming up and so on. Everything is there, so please do visit. Fabulous. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Infinitely Irrational can't get enough of the math and the fun, visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for the math and research behind the stories. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email at podcast at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one.